Thanks for downloading the latest episode of the C-Suite podcast to be produced in partnership with SAP UK. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith, and uh, this time we're focusing on future talent, looking at the importance of graduate programmes and apprenticeships and how we can address the digital skills gap. Uh, joining me online are Lindsay Rowe, Chief of Staff, COO, and the Head of People and Programmes Office at SAP. Uh, we've got Steve Isherwood, uh, Chief Exec of the Institute of Student Employers, Amy Brereton, CEO of Anactus. UK, Nick White, Head of Junior Talent HR Europe at uh, Fujitsu, and finally Kim Hardman, UK Apprentice Programme Manager at AstraZeneca. So a packed panel. Thank you all for taking the time to chat to me today and loads to get through. So I'm going to get straight into the discussion and come to you first, Lindsay. We've queued this episode up on the fact that there is a digital skills gap. Set the scene for us. What are the skills that we're lacking and why does that skills gap exist? Thanks, Russ. Yeah, so um, if we look at it kind of a global level, so there's been some recent studies with McKinsey and the World Economic Forum. And so when we look at, I guess, technology overall, there's certainly been, uh, it's been identified through those studies that there's a, a skills gap in, in digital, and that's across all, all areas, really. Some of the stats around that, if we look at it, is that companies have actually identified skills gaps. 87% of companies have, have identified those skills gaps, either right now or they're expecting them to develop in the next five years. Now, we know, um, kind of certainly from SAP and uh, colleagues here, that actually that's then the barrier to digital transformation. So that's really where what we're talking about when we look at the skills gap is not only that there is one, but actually what's, what's that impacting and then companies moving forward for their digital transformation. So um, we think, and from these studies that are done, that majority of jobs will be then evolving and changing. So jobs that, as we've known them in the past, will be changing. Um, and then there's that real need to upskill and reskill people to having those digital skills for the future. Stephen, you've got around I think 550 members of the Institute of Student Employers, of, of those over 300 are, are actual em employers, including, I believe, those represented here. So SAP, AstraZeneca and Fujitsu. I'm guessing you get a, a good picture of what's happening across all sectors. Where are you seeing the biggest uh, skills shortages? I think it's a it's a really murky problem to try try and untangle. Um, as you said, we've got three um, three employers on the call here, all quite different businesses, and it's very difficult to generalise about an early talent labour market because different sectors different employers all want different things. So this, this phrase digital technology um, covers a wide range of skills. And also we get into the language of skills and attributes and that further further muddies the water. I think staying at a general level though, one of the, the, the challenges is actually how, how does an education system and a training system stay relevant when the pace of change is so fast? I mean, I get asked all the time, you know, what's the future of jobs in five or 10 years? And I think it's really very, very difficult to predict. So I think that's why we're seeing employers move more into the apprentice space, for example, because that, that, that in a sense shortens the supply, supply chain of development. You know, employers are much more involved in training development of, of early talent as it comes in on board into their, into their organisations. So I think we're going to see more of that. For me, it's just that keeping pace with change. That, that's the challenge. And there's very good reasons why education systems can be a bit slow to change. So I think we've got to find ways to, to, get, to get around that. 
Sure. Uh, well, well, let's hear from um, Nick and Kim, our employers on the call here, as, as well as obviously SAP. But it'd be good to know how you guys are addressing this issue within your recruitment plans. Nick, Nick, let's come to you first. Can you talk us through who you're recruiting at, at Fujitsu and, and maybe what the split is between apprenticeships and uh, graduate programmes? We've run a graduate and apprentice program for a number of years now, but what I'm seeing is that there's more demand of a certain type of digital, more computer science type of graduate or an apprentice than previously ever before. My responsibilities for across all of Europe um, and across all of Europe every year, I'd say we take on anywhere between 200 to 250 grads and apprentices. If we look at just the UK, that's about... It's about 50 to 70 grads and then about 50 to 70 apprentices every year as well. And as I say, the um, if we go back a few years ago, our business was asking for more of the business type roles, project managers, business managers, business consultants. And whilst we're still recruiting those, actually the demand for software developers, for cyber, for data, that's just increased. You know, almost tenfold. Are your apprentices coming at a, a younger level, or do they? Is, is there different age groups that you um, recruit? Yeah. So on on both of our programs, we have no age restriction. Although the majority of the recruitment for our apprentices are generally school leavers, so they're eighteen year olds who have decided not to go to university for for whatever reason, um, and we offer what is a level four an apprenticeship and a degree apprenticeship as well. We find that the degree apprenticeship is much more popular for candidates. The applications per role for degree apprenticeships far outseed the number of applications we get for level four. But equally, I think there's, there's, a, there's a level of awareness raising that needs to be done in the marketplace because I think a lot of people still think of apprentices as plumbers or electricians and um, they don't actually realize that the apprentices cover a wide range of different skills especially in the tech and digital sector yeah kim you were nodding along there do you want to talk us through the programs that that you run yeah i think just just to reiterate what nick was saying we're finding the same so we have apprentices from level three up to level seven and what we find sometimes with a level three is you know there's this we have to bring them at that level because they're going to such specialist areas in our manufacturing area engineering area but they don't just stay there so i think that's you know we get more demand for the degree ones because you know they still think of the degree is the only thing that matters but in an environment like a pharmaceutical environment which is so highly regulated there are some areas where you do have to start at that level three and work your way up but in terms of what we have, we have about 173 across our business at the moment. Uh, like I say, anything from a level three through to level seven. Um, and this is a mix of early careers who typically join us straight from A-levels. Again, there's no upper age limit. So we do have some people in there who are returning to work, mothers, um, um, with career changes, that kind of thing. Um, but what we're also seeing is a growing number of employees who are upskilling using the apprenticeship levy because we have a, a culture of lifelong learning at AstraZeneca. Um, so for 2020, we saw, like you know, Nick was saying, I'm seeing um, an expanse of the types of apprenticeships that we have. So we had four new programs uh, for 2020. And we're, we're looking, I think we're going to have even more than that for 2021, looking at different areas, so different parts of IT, 
quality is coming through finance, project management, that kind of thing. Because what we find at AstraZeneca is that the apprentices have provided us with much needed skills that sometimes we've um, traditionally it's been hard to recruit. We find they bring a diverse perspective to our business, which is, you know, pharmaceutical industry, it's kind of typical, well, our company is typically quite an academic organization. You go to university, you might do a master's. And what I'm seeing is an, an openness to this different way of learning and that actually the calibre of candidates that we get coming through are people that have chosen not to go to university. It's not the vocational, like Nick said, about plumbing, hairdressing, that kind of thing. Actually, you can train to be a scientist using the apprenticeship levy. Um, you know, we have, we've had apprentices in the business for over 40 years, and there's an awful lot of our senior leads in the business have started out life um, as a, an apprenticeship. And just just one final point is, you know, during COVID recently, what we found with our apprentices was we found a number of them actually had to step up. So they're being, they're being given opportunities that other early careers positions haven't been given because, you know, in the labs, for example, we had to make sure that we still delivered. We were doing the vaccine. We were working on tier one projects. We had to keep those going. And what we found was a lot of, you know, sometimes there were people, senior leads, etc., who had to self-isolate. So the apprentices had to step up and had to step into their shoes and work on some of those um, those areas. So we've had apprentices in COVID testing, COVID testing labs and also working on the vaccine as well. Interesting stuff. Lindsay, how does the apprenticeship program and, and also graduate placements and student placements, how's, how's that all working at SAP? Yeah, so certainly for us in the UK, so at kind of a global level, we've got a number of different programs and very similar to Kim, that kind of concept of learning for life. So making sure that the program is also around reskilling and upskilling existing employees. Um, and we also have a number of uh, programs that focus on diversity so we have like an autism at work program um, as well so there's lots of different initiatives but if we look specifically at the UK so we're looking we have a large internship program so where people need to uh, do a year in business so they're coming out of university um, in their second year spend a year in in industry and then go back to do their final year so we typically we've got um, 50 plus every year with us this year's have joined us virtually but we are just about to dip our toe and start the apprenticeship journey so Kim we'd be ringing you all the time and Nick um, and Nick actually you've already started and helped us with some of that journey so um, you know SAP a huge um, investment into the apprenticeship levy being such a large employer in the UK um, so yeah that's I mean super exciting times to think how do we actually then bring in more diverse talent as, as Kim and Nick have mentioned there but also how do we actually then use that to start bridging this this skills gap uh, and not just for SAP so really where we're looking at it is what does that then mean for our customers and our partner organizations so we've got over 21,000 partners globally they also have these challenges so how can we you know leverage the levy and make sure that we're using that to to kind of drive that skills gap so I have to say it's the thing I'm most most excited about at, at the moment. You, you mentioned the levy a couple of times there. I, I read £133 million of levy funds went unspent last year. Why, why do you think some employers didn't take advantage of that? I'm surprised it was only that. I, I, I think it's probably a hell of a, hell of a lot more. Um, so I, I think traditionally, organisational training programmes were often put someone in a classroom for a week, two weeks at a time, and actually you get a certificate at the end of it. And then it's up to the organisation to 
find ways for that individual to apply that at, at work. But actually, the apprentice model works really, really differently to that. So actually, this is about not only studying, but then practically applying that learning during your apprenticeship. And, and recruiting apprentices in, that model works quite quite well. And actually, you can put um, you can put an apprentice model in place, which reduces the amount of billable hours and, and productivity time, because the, um, the rules are about an apprenticeship is that you have to spend 20% of your time in off-the-job learning. So I think employers who've jumped on this have said, well, actually, we can we can increase the amount of apprentices that we recruit into the business. It's a fantastic way to um, develop the skills that we need. It's a great way to get diversity into the organization. So some employers have done that. We've increased our apprentice intake into the organization. But as Kim and Lindsay have both mentioned, um, the other bit which is I don't think every organization has fully gotten onto is you can take existing employees and help to upskill them in their chosen career or their chosen skills path. And, and we, I think we've, at Fujitsu, we've done this quite well. So we, we currently have, it's about 200 people studying for some type of an apprenticeship. 50% of them are our current employees. But that's been a real difficult sell back to the organization. So actually, if some of our consultants who are normally billable for 18, 90% of their time, we've had to actually work with the business to change their charging model to say, well, actually, 20% of their time will now not be billable. They will be applying their learning. They will be learning new skills. And the business have really had to get their head around that real shift. And by the way, it's not just for a week or two weeks, it's for at least 12 months. <laughs> you know, it's probably going to be two years. And actually, that's a difficult sell back into back into the organization. And I think that is, you know, kind of led to organizations saying, well, actually, it's a bit too hard and complex of a problem for us to fix. If, if we have to pay this money, once we've paid it, it's gone. The question is then about how do I get value from it? And I don't think people, I don't think organizations have fully understood it's around getting value from the levy. Um, because once you've spent it, you've spent it. Once, it, once it's gone, it's, it's, it's gone from your books. And I know a lot of organizations are, we'll just write it off because it doesn't fit our business model. Kim, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I agree with what Nick just said then about the um, getting value from it, because I think that's what we try and do. I think um, targeting those individuals in the business who need the upskilling, the skills gaps, kind of whatever whatever the reason is. But again, it's, you know, sometimes we do get the challenge of, well, I'm losing the person for 20%. And it's just trying to get them to understand that actually, yes, they, you know, the person may not be around for 20% of the week, depending on how the education provider delivers the training but actually it's not like I don't know you know they're they're training to be a scientist and then they decide that they want to go and train to be a florist one day a week and they lose them completely it's making them realize that their training is works alongside what they're doing in their day job so actually it's a parallel process that feeds into each other and actually can benefit the organization as well because they're typically they're on a lot of well ours most of ours are on in fact all of them actually are on open programs so they go when they go and train they're working they're training with people from other organizations so they're learning they're not only learning about the academic side but they're learning about other organizations how they do things which is 
great insight for kind of how we can become more efficient within our business as well. I think the the one of the things that is a challenge, I think, with the with the levy, and I'm don't know what the answer is, but I think when we bring a new apprentice into the business, we bring them in on a, what we call a fixed term contract. So for us, that's like a permanent employee. They get the same, almost all of the same benefits, but for a fixed period of time. But we have to get that headcount. We also have to secure their salary, etc., to bring them into the business, and then so and then pay for the training through the levy. Um, the process is quite admin heavy, and it does require support from the business. Now, those guys that have already got apprentices they recognize the value and they've they've worked it out but I think sometimes that can that can that can cause a a challenge sometimes for our business um, in terms of how many we bring in. Steve you wanted to add? Yeah just a couple of things I'd add to that our data says the same because we ask our employers what they think about the levy and it it is that it's that realization that the levy only pays for a certain proportion of, of a new hire's cost there's significant other costs attached so that business reason does need to be clear about why you're hiring apprentices. I think one of the other things that actually that some employers don't understand is actually the the levy system is really not designed for employers to recover all the money that they spend on the levy. It's a payroll tax. There isn't a pot of £130 million sat in a bank account waiting for somebody to go and find a way to spend it. It's a tax. It pays for the whole apprentice system. And some of the information I've seen coming out of government is that basically that tax is fully spent. It's paying for the whole system. So I think there is a lot of reform that needs to happen um, with the apprentice system to make it work properly for employers, apprentices, and and sort of all the college training providers as well. Just to build on Kim's point, I think when businesses get it, when the business areas get it, and they don't see the 20% as a barrier, and they don't see the length of time in training as a barrier, and they think, well, actually, this aligns perfectly with how I want to train up my people and develop skills, they, they can't then get enough of it. <laughs> like, well, actually, let, let's get some more. Um, but there is that initial, actually, it's diff, it's just a different way to how we've developed people previously. Um, it's much more longer, it's a more longer term investment. That's the hurdle that our business people need to get over. Yeah, we've had something very similar, Nick, if we look at our internships, you know, once people know and they see the value, you, you're actually having to say, well, <laughs> there's only so many like that's that's plausible here, you know, and then because they get such a different perspective of what they bring in as well. And they're going, wow, they're just so hungry to to do this work and get involved. And they're coming with all these new ideas and they've got like no barriers or apathy in them. And you're like, yeah, but, you know, let's let's balance that. So we definitely see that once the business sees the value. Amy, you've been very patiently sitting there. We haven't heard from you yet, so I want to bring you into the into the podcast. Tell us a little bit about Anactus and, and why you believe the organisation can help find uh, future talent. Yeah, of course. So Anactus UK is the UK's leading combined youth social action and youth social enterprise charity, developing thousands of young entrepreneurial spirits every single year. So our mission in the UK is to be recognised as a leader in developing a sustainable national network of socially minded young leaders of the future who transform communities and society through real life social action. I guess in a nutshell what Anactus is is we work within universities to work with students to develop projects in the local community around the sustainable development goals. So in terms of some of the things that we do in Anactus um, we have students working on a multitude of projects across the UK. We have over 2,000 students at the moment working on projects in a COVID safe way um, from all sorts. So from working 
working with local supermarkets to repurpose food waste, such as waste bread into beer and creating breweries as a result, to projects around STEM for schools. So I think it's really interesting in terms of the the digital skills um, gap and that skills divide. So, So some of our students have even identified that within their local communities. And we have a multitude of projects, again, around, um, we've got one called STEM for Schools, which is about working with students at a young age um, to try and develop those kind of technological skills. We've got a project and a race called the Race to End the Digital Divide, which is working on a need that has really been exasperated by the pandemic and by COVID around access to education and access to technology in deprived areas. So a team of students are working with some of our partners on that. And importantly as well, um, SAP are one of our fantastic partners at Anactus UK and work really, really closely with our teams, are developing projects around telecare for social isolation, around using contactless technology to work with those who are in temporary accommodation to create a business around the model of beggar to busker. And so some really cool technological projects that we're working in partnership with all of our partners, but SAP mainly when it comes to technology. And I guess the reason why this is important from an employability perspective is because our students are doing this alongside their degrees. So the bread to beer project that I spoke about, Future Brew, the leader of that project is actually studying a aerospace engineering Degree alongside creating this brewery. So, from employability perspective, our students are really demonstrating on the ground a lot of those kind of key skills that maybe are missing. So, not only the kind of technological skills that um, we've spoke about today, but things like resilience, time management, organisation, communication. They're having to do that whilst kind of at university. So, really, are fantastic kind of future talent for businesses to get involved with. I think we've recently had a study that came from Universum that showed the application to hire rate of the average UK student was 0.9%, whereas for an active student, it was 45%. So a huge difference in, again, that application to hire, which I think is a, a testament to all of the fantastic work they do alongside their degrees every day. Lindsay, Amy just mentioned SAP's involvement in an actus. I mean, how important are programmes like that to you know fr- from your perspective in terms of developing young talent and and how can your customers but also your partners help you address the skills challenges that that you face so um our, our partnership and relationship started with actus um last year and i guess when we looked at it and how we'd actually engage um we didn't even realize the kind of potential if i'm completely honest and as we started to involve ourselves with the students again it was one of those moments a bit like i mentioned with the interns where people just blown away they're like God, it's, this takes us ages to get a team pulled together that would come up with an idea like that because they've again they're they're kind of looking at these projects in different ways. So a big driver behind our relationship with Anaxus was really on the focus of the social enterprise aspect of it. So one of the key things that SAP is looking at really from a purpose perspective is that with the type of scale of our organisations, whether that's us or AstraZeneca or Fujitsu or any of our partners, we are in a position that we can use that level of scale to actually have the impact in the communities. So that's really where we were. Um, but once we started to work with Anaxus, we realised that actually it's almost an extension of of your workforce in some respects and just bringing in different ideas but actually your current workforce then suddenly get really inspired 
Because sometimes when you're sat and you're working, going through your kind of day to day for many years, you, you lack some of that that's kind of spark and inspiration always. So we've they've had the opportunity to coach and mentor and get involved in the teams. And it's then made them almost in a kind of reverse mentoring. They've taken some of those ideas back into the business as well. So I think in terms of our customers and partners, what our goal is that that we collaborate all as as one on these these ideas. So I think when we joined the Institute of Student Employers was the biggest eye-opener for me that it's actually, when you're talking about skills and students, it's completely non-competitive. It's really, it's a really unique dynamic almost. So, I mean, Nick and I, we did an event with three other employers earlier in the year about getting to tech because we know that there's great people that just need to be inspired to get into technology. And it's not us fighting over the very next graduate or apprentice or anything like that. We just kind of all got together. And same with Kim. It's just being able to just share those pieces. So whether AstraZeneca and Fujitsu happen to be SAP customers, but actually the reason we got together and knew each other was through the Institute. And the same with Enactus, you know, the people on the board and the other partners you look and you go, oh, that's an SAP customer, but they're also involved in this. And oh, actually, that's an SAP partner. So when you look at it, I just think of everyone, I mean, it sounds a little bit soft probably, but genuinely, if people and organisations come together, you're going to be much more likely to, to achieve this stuff rather than trying to do it alone. I mean, we've got obviously we've got Steve as part of this podcast. We can have a nice ISE love in here, and it's lovely that you all get on and collaborate. But if there's a digital skills gap there, you you must be competing for the ones that do have those skills that you want to each get get into your business. How does that work? Digital is really interesting because I think they they are the the pure tech players. You know, kind of fidget to SAP in here, but AstraZeneca is a pharmaceutical company who will also have digital roles and are also demanding students who have the digital skills. So actually, the tech players like us aren't just competing in a market of that no one else is competing in. We're competing in the market that every single industry is competing in. And that's part of the reason why there's a, there's a, there's a digital skills gap. And, and actually, from, a, from an org, organizational point of view, sometimes... You know, SAP is one of our, our partners. Actually, we work collaboratively on organizational things. But actually, there are other tech players who are our competitors that actually, when it comes to winning customers, actually, we would be competing against each other. But actually, I think we all recognize the need of developing and inspiring students into STEM careers because actually they're not going into um, into STEM careers. Um, and actually, we work really, really collaboratively together. It's almost like we leave our logos at the door and actually we come together for the good of the industry and say, well, actually, if we can inspire people into digital roles Actually, if we, you know, if, if 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 we have them for a certain amount of time, actually, that 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 it, it ultimately just benefits the industry and UK economy. I, I love that expression, leaving your logos at the door, Steve. You're going to have to put that into your charter somehow. <laughs> I think we will. Well, and to be honest with you, um, we've always found employers do collaborate because one thing that we didn't talk. about about at the, at, the, at the start of this podcast was preference and that's what we're talking about and often when we talk about skills gap and we talk about you know we need to do things to train and develop and build structures but we've got to 
deal with the preference piece, whether it's for an industry, because location can be be an issue as well. And that's what I employ is. I mean, of course, it's nice to have a have an ISE-driven loving, but, you know, businesses are commercial operations. So there's a point where everybody has to collaborate so that more people understand about the opportunities that are out there because I mean it's another podcast about the problems around um, careers information and access within schools but that is part of the issue and it's by employers collaborating with all sorts of organizations whether it's us or an access that we can help solve that and that will help address problems with the skills gap employers do then fight you know tooth and nail so there's a point whereby right we've done the the marketing the industry bit now we fight for the talent we want and um and yeah so it does get competitive let's not let's not forget that <laughs> I do I do think though I think if you know employers work together I think because there are the gaps you know or the um the lack of people coming through I think it's about um inspiring them so it's inspiring them about the art of the possible so it's you know people look at us as a pharmaceutical company and just think it's all about science but they don't realize that without IT skills or digital skills data skills you know our scientists can't do what they do so without the IT area, it's behind every single thing that we do. And they get surprised by that. But I think for me, it's kind of, yes, you know, um, Fujitsu and SAP, SAP and, and AstraZeneca and lots of other companies can all work together and inspire people about the range of careers and the fact that, they, you know, it's not all about locking yourself in a dark room and coding, but it's actually a lot more than that. And all these companies working together can showcase the range of opportunities and inspire people to kind of take a plunge, really. Amy? Yeah, no, I was just going to add to that. And I think Kim makes a great point in that. I don't know. I feel like I always try to put myself in the student generation, but I'm really not anymore. But I think for my generation, it very much was a case of when you thought of like technological skills or digital skills, it was coding, which to me is terrifying. Like it really is a really scary concept. Um, even though I've watched like the Netflix uh, documentary on coding, it's still terrifying to me. But for some of the the kind of the younger students that are coming through, I know that one we have a project at the moment in Sheffield that's working on showing how things like coding, things like that are are almost kind of a key core skill now for so many different jobs and like industries that it's not just those typical ones that maybe you think about. And I think that kind of then goes back to that point about it isn't just your more technological industries that maybe this digital gap is now impacting. It's it's everyone really, isn't it? Because as we move towards, especially we've seen it even in this past year, like how important it is to be developing technology all the time. And we've seen the kind of the big players come up. Like, I think it's really starting to come even more important to show that it isn't just those things that you think about straight away when you think of coding and things like that. It's all jobs that will access and benefit from that. Well, Lindsay, I wanted to ask, I mean, how, how are you encouraging that young talent into a future career in tech who may not have necessarily considered that previously? Yes, we're um, trying to shout it from the rooftops in every type of way we can at all levels. And um, what I mean by that is really... If I look at my niece, for example, she's nine and I feel like she'd probably just start coding something and not even realise she's coding. They they just, they're kind of that digital native idea for the younger ones now. So she'll just pick stuff up. She just figures it out. It's kind of how they're being taught at this at this younger age now so you know suddenly you realize she's done a whole thing on your sky tv or 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 whatever it is and you think you don't even have that at home how on earth have you managed to to do that so i think certainly with the younger ones they they tech is actually cool 
it's it's not seen as something geeky or or whatever they they just love it they just living and breathing it the whole time i think it's that mid range really um of people that either are thinking about transferring into tech so not just young people so i know you know nick and kim talked about there is no age gap here so if we look at what's happened with with covid some industries have just been you know hugely impacted totally unpredicted and as much as there's a lot of kind of controversy around the kind of, you know, reskilling or retraining. We, we've seen a number of areas um, and, and studies that say people are actually really act going forward with that um, and actually thinking about a career in tech. So I think for us, it's just that continual education, getting people to, to see it, collaborating with others. I'm seeing traditional industries rebranding themselves as tech companies. A lot of finance banks, they, they're all now because they know that's where they've been disrupted. If you look at the fintechs coming in and the Monzos and whatever, they're realising actually that's, that's what's making it attractive. So part of it is just continual education. So Enactus helps us with that. Um, from SAP because we're talking to university students but we're now getting into the kind of school level as well so we've been working with co-op um, academies so I've got a large number across the northwest and again it's just that inspiration getting children to to see technology as a different career path I definitely think and I'm sure Steve you, you've seen loads of uh, studies around this piece is the influence of parents so it's one thing getting into the student but actually the parents and the other influences, it's not all just parents, it's aunts, uncles and all the different things to really have an understanding of, of career types. Now, obviously, we're talking about digital skills gap today, but I think actually just inspiring children to know they've got an opportunity in the future for a job. Part of me would also say get an apprenticeship as a plumber, as an electrician, because the more and more people in tech, they absolutely won't know how to fix anything. So, you know, just knowing that there's a future career, whatever the industry that is, I think that's the bit that we need to all be kind of collectively doing. So again, you know, if I look at it just purely as the UK and everything that we're seeing at the moment, inspiring and those children to think, actually, I will come out of education at whatever level, 16, 18 or later in life, and there's a, there will be a really cool job for me. That's the bit we kind of need to get to, for, from my perspective, because that that people's well-being has been hugely impacted recently. I'm really feeling like the options aren't there. So rather than it just being, well, SAP will do stuff into tech. I think we've all got a responsibility to to make young people get young people or those people out of work inspired to thinking things are you know when we get out of this things are on the up. Just to reinforce Lindsay's initial point about how to show that these kind of skills are relevant to different industries. So SAP at Lindsay specifically did a fantastic like session with over 150 of our students a couple of weeks ago now on employability, but also on brand, on like LinkedIn present and things like that, but showed how it was relevant to technology. So showed how by using technology, people could almost assess people's um, like candidates' abilities, capabilities and core competencies using technology. So the reason I think that's important is because I'm from a HR background. I would never consider technology as part of my role. Like I wouldn't have, would have never have considered it or even thought about it or even thought that I needed it. But 
the way that Lindsay and SAP did that session, it's almost showing that this is a really important kind of skill for multiple industries, multiple times, but also showing our students, especially in this situation, how almost key it's going to be for them and to think about that career in tech and then look to people like SAP and and other industries as a kind of a good employer versus maybe thinking, oh, I need to go to HR. It needs to be this company instead if that makes sense so I thought that was it 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 works like it is working with us it's making it a difference I think it's also showcasing as well I think employers would benefit from showcasing how they use those skills so for me I always think about you know those kids in a chemistry lesson at school literally with the noose around their necks thinking oh my god I just can't do I can't do this anymore if employers like ourselves basically show them how we use chemistry how we use chemistry to save people's lives and inspire them to me it brings on a whole new meaning and I think it's the same with all the STEM subjects if you can if you can show people the different way that if you get an A-level or a GCSE in chemistry or maths or anything or technology, actually you, you've, you're the first on the first rung of being able to have a really fulfilling career that potentially is going to save somebody's lives. And I think we have a responsibility to do that, I think, to inspire them. Kim, do you, just out of interest, do you think this past sort of nine, ten months through the pandemic has got more people interested in that sector that that whole point of saving lives has it raised that you know I really want to be a part of that yeah we I found because I used to lead the the early careers recruitment team so we used to recruit graduates apprentices and postdocs and um you you and we still get it is a, a lot of people who apply to our organization they're sadly they 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 know somebody that's maybe taken an AstraZeneca drug and there is that there's there's that that inspires them but then the sustainability aspect as well it will be interesting to see. I mean, we had a 121% increase in our application rate for apprentices from 19 to 20. And even when we'd filled them all, we had people coming through who decided not to go to university because of COVID. So I'm really going to be watching with interest to see if we get another increase for 2021 to see. Yeah, because it would make sense if, if that's the case. Yeah. I just want to move on to the, the topic of placements versus going into a, into a graduate role. Nick, Nick, what's your thoughts on that? So I did a placement, yeah, when I was at university that in my head wasn't too long ago, but I think sadly it probably was. Um, and and, and I, I, I just felt it that when I then took a graduate role and I was applying for graduate roles, there was a level of dare I say, a level of maturity. There's this level of experience, life experience that I had that I could relate to whatever application process I'd gone through. When I got my job, you know, there was perhaps I know how things kind of work around here. There wasn't that steep learning curve. So I think I, th- I think the placement option for anyone considering it is a really, really great way of just getting some real practical work skills and some real life skills as well. Um, I know that ISE, um, Steve, there's research around um, actually do placement students that go back to the same company, do they stay longer and do they perform better? And actually the results say yes, yes, they do. Um, so if you do have a placement programme and then that's a pipeline into a graduate program or another program, actually you get more benefit from, from that candidate. Um, they will stay with you longer and they're likely to perform 
longer as well. I think really interestingly, the pandemic, and I know, so at Fujitsu, we we don't actually offer placements anymore. We've converted all those to apprenticeship roles as a result of the apprenticeship levy. But what we do look for in the recruitment process, and it just riches you as a candidate, is that level of work experience. Um, So actually, if you have done summer jobs, if you've done placements, um, actually that all adds to your your richness as a candidate um, and all of those additional skills that you've learned in whatever type of work experience is really, really valuable to, to any employer. I'll tell you, you've made me think now about my own placement. I, I did a placement at Hewlett-Packard 30 so years ago, I won't say exactly how many, but I'll tell you what's really, you just suddenly made me think because one of the, I used to look after all the, or, or work with all the user groups and I had to record, it was before the web and, and, and everything, but I had to sit and record, we had a customer information line that, you know, that they, they could ring up and it would be click one for whatever, click two for user groups. And I, I had to sit in, you've just suddenly made me think I had to sit in a little studio booth and record that every month. And who, who knew 30 years later, I'm going to be <laughs> recording podcasts. So they gave me this whole training about how to raise and lower your voice and all this kind of stuff. So there you go. Placements, placements are, are, are the thing. A- Amy, have you, have, have you, you, you did a placement, didn't you? Yeah, so I did do a placement. And it's funny that um, Nick was saying for, well, not funny, but for the company that it's obviously they perform better if they go back to them as grads but I actually did a placement in what should have been my third year at university and I wasn't due to do a placement at all it wasn't part of my degree it wasn't something that I'd even thought about before and I literally made the split decision like I think in like the May before I went back um in the September to my final year of uni to just take a year out and and work and work on a um in a year in industry and I actually went back in my after I graduated to the same employer and as I was saying it was funny that um, Nick said that they perform better and they they stay longer but it actually was really useful for me like not only by the fact that it gave me a graduate job which was guaranteed before I finished my placement so because I'd performed well on placement I got it guaranteed so I knew as soon as I kind of started my final year at uni that I already had my grad job in the bag so I didn't really need to worry about that so it not only meant that I could focus on my degree and really just do my degree whereas a lot of my friends were going to assessment centers and doing application forms and like traveling to London for interviews I didn't have to do any of that which is obviously brilliant but also I was an actress student so it also gave me loads of time to work on an actress so it was brilliant in every single way and I think you're totally right Nick in terms of that maturity that you get as well like I went into my final year having been used to working and the place the where I did my placement it's it's quite long hours that I did. So I was used to working from eight or six minimum every single day. So therefore going to a couple of lectures a week was so easy. It was brilliant. Like I just, it meant that I could easily do even like 10 to four and still be more productive than the normal students. So it was, I would not change it for the world. Like I thought, I think it's the most brilliant thing people can do. And I would always advise and encourage people to take placements a hundred percent of the time. Sure. Lindsay, you were going to comment? Yeah, no, just in terms of what we see happen to somebody in a year on placement is the best thing to watch in terms of a transformation. So um, I didn't go to university, so I didn't do a placement or, or any of those things. I mean, I do. I certainly remember my work experience at like 14, 15, and that, that, and that, that was enough. That two weeks and getting £20 at the end of it um, was just like, that was the inspiration. I was like, 
wow, like you do that for two weeks and then this is awesome. Like I definitely want to get a job, whatever that might be. And I think for our students when they come in, it's genuinely they've got, you know, we have to teach a lot of the stuff, you know, the etiquette, the the life skills stuff that Nick's talking about. But just in genuinely 12, 13 months, they change completely and they actually go back to university with a different perspective. They treat their um their studies completely differently. I spoke to one the other day, he's just gone back and he said, I'd wake up really late for my first two years of uni. He said, but actually I just, I've got a bit of a project plan. I get up working with my friend in the house to make sure we're getting through all of our work on time so we can actually have a bit of an evening and not cram. So they're genuinely taking the sort of skills, you know, back in. And and in terms of that loyalty piece, I mean, I've got two, uh, two of my team who were on placement then came back and they've been back in the business kind of one in five or six years. They're already going through their promotions and all of the different things. And you definitely get that loyalty from, from doing that because they've, they, you were there at that bit where they probably felt super daunted. So yeah, we, we certainly use placements as our main feeder for, for early talent. It saves on onboarding and higher costs as well. If you think about it from a, a, like an actual organizational cost perspective as well if you've got placement students that are are coming back into the business that whole onboarding piece the time training piece is already gone isn't it like you you've done it already when they were a new hire as an intern or an industrial placement student so from an organizational piece as well like it makes sense financially to have your interns and your industrial placement students as that pipeline for grads like it it just makes complete sense because it just it saves you so much time and money steve what's your thoughts on this um, I agree with what everybody said. I mean, and our, as Nick said, our data proves the case. There's a reason employers do placements and internship programs. They are a really good way of sourcing talent. And I hear the same from universities who say the students who go back for their final year, they're better students. So there really is. There are, there are new loads in this. So employers that aren't engaged in things like placement programs and are really missing out on, on, a, on, a, on a very useful talent stream. And that's why really over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a really significant growth in, in early engagement programs. So I think the more the better. The one thing I would say, though, there is a danger that students think, oh, God, if I haven't done a placement, I haven't done an internship, I'm screwed. I'm never going to get a job. Um, Just the way operational requirements, there there never are as many placement or internship programme opportunities as there are graduate jobs. So it's not the end of the world if you don't get one. I think it's important we give that balanced message to to students. But I think the more that we can do these kind of programmes, definitely the better for, for all concerned. Sure. And, and and coming back to this apprenticeships versus going to university, I mean, we, t- we touched on this a little bit just before, Kim, in terms of the interest due to COVID, but, but has, has the pandemic encouraged more potential students to think more about apprenticeships, given that that university experience has, has changed very much? So, uh, you know, certainly this year. So have they thought, actually, I'd rather do an apprenticeship? I mean, I'll know for certain, um, kind of, um, we go live with our vacancies in January um, and they close in March, so we'll know for certain then. But if I look at the careers events we've been supporting, then the interest has been has been huge, if I'm honest. And I think it's it's like you just said, I think the experience of going to university isn't what it was. There's the uncertainty in the job market. Um, and I think it's encouraging people to research things. And I think they're realising that in some cases, and quite a number of the cases, they can actually train and they train in the job that they want to do, getting the degree that they want to get while earning money and not getting the debt. And I think I think that's a combination of things. I think 
the things I've just said about COVID, but I think there's the awareness of apprenticeships is increasing as well. So I think the influencers um, that um, we mentioned earlier, so parents, carers, teachers, career advisors, those main people who influence our children, I think they are more aware now as well that, you know, their child going into an apprenticeship is not kind of an embarrassing thing. It's actually something that they should be very proud of. I think for me, an apprenticeship's a, a tougher gig, really, because, you know, I look at ours, ours come into a proper job and they're expected to deliver. Um, so they're in teams and proper jobs while studying for a qualification of some description at the same time. So it's not it's certainly not an easy option. And I think that awareness, I think, has increased um, and is encouraging more people to look at it. Lindsay, what, what's your thoughts on on that? Yeah, I mean, certainly not not from kind of a bit like him, kind of knowing like statistically where where it's looking like, but just getting a sense of how people are feeling since the pandemic. You know, there's definitely been people feeling a bit disgruntled going back to to university um, and those sorts of things. So I think there's certainly going to be a shift in terms of people considering apprenticeships and I think now that we've seen the success stories over the last few years there's people that they can look to and go oh gosh right that person went that route and I went this one and actually that person's kind of ahead of the game I certainly found that myself and again I think we've all admitted um how how old we feel at the moment kind of going through this I certainly get reminded of all the time with our interns started off with kind of being known as the auntie and then the mum and I think recently one said when they got a puppy oh you're like our grandma now it's like <laughs> I don't know how in the space of genuinely three years I've gone through uh, so many generations but I, I certainly found it's, it's it's when they haven't heard of the Thompson twins that you you start to get really concerned oh yeah I mean there's certain things you say you said you mentioned certain films from the 80s and they're just looking at you blank and you're like oh gosh um <laughs> certainly when I went out you know I, I I didn't do an apprenticeship or anything but I sort of went to straight into work at 18 when my friends came out of university because I was the only one from pretty much the the peer group that didn't do it and they then got the job that I got when I was 18 so they came out at 21 and went into the exact same company because that was the the big employer in the area so that for me was kind of a, a big reminder that actually if you've got the right attitude towards things and you can get that opportunity now university for some people it's it's the best thing they could possibly go and do it goes and gives them maybe a, a different level of independence or whatever I think it's just really that people knowing that there is choice and that one isn't better than the other, it, I think they're really going to start seeing that because we've got, you know, these these role models now and these these success stories and people see, oh, they've just bought a house or they've just got a car and all of these things. I think that will really help the brand of apprenticeships as well. I think it is a really difficult choice for anyone leaving school right now because there's such a different array of options available to you right now certainly for me it was expected that I do a levels and then I'd go on to university um but actually you know a degree apprenticeship right now where if I was 18 and you know didn't get into as much debt as I did when I went to university would be a hell of a lot more of an attractive option I agree it's hard though Kim um if I think you know studying for a, a degree in my first year I'll not pretend I was busy, busy, but, um, you know, um, but actually if I'm balancing that as well as a job as well, you know, that, that, I mean, that is tough. You know, these guys are working hard. Do you think that's an education piece then like for schools in terms of 
apprenticeships because I know like for me like when I went to uni and I went to university 12 years ago now it was never even a question of you go like you just go to university that was the only thing and I was the first in my family to go so like nobody I didn't have any kind of guidance from anybody around me to what university even looked like so I I genuinely picked business because my rationale was oh well I've got to work in a business somewhere someday so I may as well learn business and that's how I decided and I think in terms of apprenticeships you're right Nick like I would love to not I'm what nearly I don't want to say like nearly 30 now um in 12 days and I've still got 25 grand's worth of debt from university like that and I don't think about it because it's kind of something that comes out but apprenticeships would be a fantastic option like if it was something that you don't have to then if it was even known like as a thing so maybe that's where more schools need to get involved or organizations with schools to educate around the benefits of them yeah the the awareness piece is still huge it's getting better it's it's absolutely getting better we're on a journey but I I think there's still more there's still more to be done we we need to be telling the stories we need to be having the role models out at schools you know kind of and 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 saying actually I picked this option and and actually kind of and I'm having a great time but equally I think there are some structural policy type things that need to happen as well so and I, I don't know if schools still Ah, but I know a few years ago, um, you know, schools were still targeted and reported on number of UCAS applications, number of people going to university, nothing about apprenticeships, um, and actually things like that, which will level up and actually make the choice more equal and make it more viable for a student career service at, at sixth form college or or A level college to actively promote it. I think would would also help as well. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I remember one apprentice was making it his life's work because his school, when he said he wanted to be, it was a really bright guy. When his school said to his school he wanted to do an apprenticeship, they were did everything they could to persuade him because they wanted him to go to university. So he made it his life's work to basically go back to them at every given opportunity just to showcase exactly what he was doing, how he was progressing, just to just to make the point. Yeah, we've got I've got grads that I recruited this year who've now who joined at the same time of our degree apprentices and said, "Oh, if I had known that, yes. I would have done a degree yeah. apprenticeship as well." <gasps> yeah. Just um, coming back to the the, the pandemic and, and the impact that that's had. I, what, what I was keen to find out was, I mean, obviously it's it's been an an interesting year from a recruitment point of view. I've heard of stories where companies have taken people on they haven't even necessarily met physically anyone from the company yet or or haven't even been in in a company building how how difficult has it been in this trying to close this skills gap from a training and upskilling of of colleagues nick let's start with you how how have uh, fujitsu reacted to the situation so i think it's really interesting a bit of bit of reflection I, i mean i almost think a 10-year digital transformation journey that we have all been talking about for a number of years has been forced to happen in almost 10 months. <laughs> um, you know, I, and actually, and that's a really, really positive thing. Actually, you know, we kind of, we've accelerated the pace of digital change and that's that's not a bad thing. I remember when, you know, stories were coming out February, March time in it. Um, and at Fujitsu, I think we've handled our response really, really well. We have always been ahead of any government guidance. We've stopped international travel. We've stopped domestic travel at about kind of um, February time. And I can remember getting the early careers recruitment team into a room and thinking, should we do some planning for virtual assessment centers here? 
Um, I think we'd started to see a reluctance of candidates to book onto assessment centres. And we kind of sat down and thought, well, how much scenario planning do we need to do? Right. Kind of if it comes to it, we'll just pause recruitment for two or three weeks and then we'll just get back up to speed again. And we thought, you know, will a will a virtual assessment center work? Will it not? And we we sat in that room for the whole afternoon, you know, bit of scenario planning, bit of what if this, what if that. And we came up with a plan of about three different scenarios, one of which two of them were we need to create a virtual assessment center. That was that was on the Tuesday. When we came out of that meeting, we'd already issued guidance that there was no more external visitors allowed onto site. And I think I think we then thought, right, we have to take this seriously now. We then redesigned it. We tested it with some of our current grads and apprentices on that Friday, and then we went live with our virtual virtual assessment centre the next week, um, and we, and we never looked back. And actually, what we had thought was a was going to be a bit of a second-rate option. We've been really, really surprised at the effectiveness of it. So actually, you still get to see lots of the candidates' behaviours. A lot of you can interact with the candidates really well. And actually, I think it gives a better candidate experience because you're not asking them to travel long distances, perhaps you know, spend the night in a hotel the night before for them to all get... Um, worked up and nervous about. Um, they're doing an assessment centre that's potentially in a more comfortable environment for them. There's still there'll still be the nervousness of being interviewed and being in an assessment centre, but actually, it, it's just worked really, really well. What we I think we've seen a better quality of candidate as well. So much so that regardless of whatever happens with. The return to normal, dare I say that, we will still keep in a virtual assessment centre. And then the same with any type of development activity. Again, we, you know, we had to work really, really quickly to pivot to online virtual delivery of development. And again, going into it thinking, this is probably second rate, you know, it's we have to do it. Again, we've been really, really impressed with actually, this, this works really, really well. And especially when you might be doing stuff like a lot of reflective type work to really understand, actually, what are my strengths? You know, where are my development areas? You know, rather than doing that with a big group of excited 50, 50 people who haven't seen each other in a few months and just want to talk, actually being able to do that in a, at your own pace, in your own environment, actually works really, really well, probably better than, um, than than had we got everyone together. I think what it has meant for us is certainly all of our apprentices this year, you'd mentioned to it, haven't seen a Fujitsu person yet physically. They've never been into a Fujitsu building and they've literally joined us from their bedrooms. You know, we had to get stuff shipped out to them. Um, and it has meant we've had to work really, really hard to think about well, what are they lacking. And for me, it's a lot of the unwritten cultural norms, right? So when when do you log on? <laughs> when do you when do you log off at the end of the day? When when do I go for my lunch break? Because I don't physically have that queue of people leaving their desks to go to the canteen or, or, or logging off at the end of the day. So we've worked really hard with our managers to help them understand some of that stuff. I think 
we, we've, we've been surveying our whole organization throughout, throughout the pandemic. And again, I think generally as an organization, we've been really fantastic, but we have noticed people under 30 have experienced the pandemic in a very different way and lockdown in a very different way to the rest of our organization. A lot of them will be living in shared accommodation where they don't have a study or an office that they can lock. And, and so we're, we're then kind of thinking about, well, how do we expose them to more shadowing experiences? That stuff where you know, your manager might say, just come along to this meeting I've got. It'd be good for you just to sit in and and, and just watch. That type of stuff that might have fallen down um, because actually they're just not there, right? Kind of, they need to invite them to meetings. We're kind of getting our head around and, and again, supporting our managers with, here are some additional things that, you know, you need to be thinking of when developing and, and training people who are really early on in their career. Sure. Kim, what's been the experience at AstraZeneca? So a lot, I resonate with a lot of what Nick said and, and very similar experience. You know, it, it was everybody off site, um, particularly kind of the only people really that have been on our sites are people in the labs and only if you're on tier one projects or vaccine and the guys, the manufacturing. So the ones that are making the drugs, because we've had to make sure that we carry on making our drugs because obviously people die if they don't have our drugs. So all of our process went online. I, I, like Nick said, the recruitment again and the engagement events and the onboarding events and things like that and it was trying to put yourself in their shoes and trying to make sure that you ensure that the managers were supported you having to think about mental health issues and things like that but how to keep these people engaged when they're you know basically last week they're in a classroom and this week they're sat at home in their bedroom trying to get their heads around working for an organization so it's making sure the managers thought about it as well and tried to make you know get them to step up the mark as well um but it's gone there's been it's gone really really well i think you know there are still some people who haven't been on site but then equally we've got you know so some of the scientists some of the manufacturing apprentices are the only people that are on site you know alongside the teams i mean so they've had a very strange experience so going into labs where they've never worked before going on to manufacturing lines, having to gown up and things like that, all really strange for them. And then also there's been the additional thing of working with the education providers as well who haven't worked as quickly. But I have to say considering you know they're not on a global scale like we are and, and I think it was Nick said earlier about you know the the move in tech um, in digital and tech and the support we've got it's just been mind-blowing but we work for a huge global organization so that's great so some of the education providers haven't had that kind of support but I, I would say that most of them have done a really great job in terms of providing that learning for the apprentices and supporting them. The only challenge we've had is where they've started to say, oh, they can now come back on site. And we're kind of going, I'm sorry, no, because if you're, I'm sticking with the manufacturing example, I can't have an apprentice going out to a college or university and mixing with kind of Joe Public, then going back to work on a manufacturing site where there's nobody else allowed apart from frontline workers because it's too much of a risk. So that's caused a little bit of a challenge. But I have to say they've been, they've been really great and there have been some positives out of it. 
they've all got to know each other across the UK for a start, which is when I laugh actually because previous years and we've had them in different sites across the UK and they've wanted to get to know, go to different sites and things like that. And it's a challenge sometimes because they're in busy jobs, etc. Whereas now they've spent an awful lot of time on Zoom calls and things together. And I actually had the feedback of what well, I quite like to spend some time now just with the people on my site. Um, so it's kind of, but it's, you know, it, it has worked. I think considering everything, I think it's been a, a great success. I'm really pleased. Steve, are um, your members still recruiting? Absolutely. Yes. The, um, so although it's a tough jobs market, graduate vacancies, they're, they're down by about 12% this year, which actually all things considering is, is, is pretty positive. It's different sector to sector. So some sectors like public sector um, are actually seen a growth in vacancies. Some sectors, obviously, you know, the obvious industries have been hit very hard. We've also seen apprentice vacancies, um, you know, in today's conversation they've held up very well um through the current pandemic so so yeah it, it's tough but it's that doesn't mean there's not any that there doesn't mean there's no hiring going on at all sure Lindsay, any any other thoughts on that no really just to echo i mean certainly nick and i talked about it a lot at the start because when you know we we're part of the digital sector group for the ic so we would actually all just be sharing a few war stories but i think to his point it just forced us all to talk about the stuff that you'd end up years of planning. All oh, right, we're going to turn into virtual and those sorts of things. So for us, it became really clear. We'd already hired everyone. So the decision was made, right, they're, they're going to join. We're going to figure it out. But actually, I'd say probably the biggest benefit has been the, the students have seen how much of an opportunity is for them. They've known that their friend at uni got their placement cancelled or whatever. So they've actually thrown way more into it. And they've normally in the first month when we onboard them, it's all the social stuff. They're figuring out the who's who, all of that dynamics going on. It doesn't matter what content we put on. They're figuring that out. They're starting to live together and everything else, nights out, because they haven't had that. They've, and they've been at home. They've actually just really, I mean, their learning has excelled. They've been able to get up to standard way, way quicker than, than we've seen in any previous years. So, yeah, there's part of me that's thinking, regardless of where we go going forward, a lot of stuff we will continue virtually, both in assessments and also onboarding. Amy, has COVID impacted the Anactus programme? Yes, <laughs> in every single way possible. Because if you think about the Anactus programme, first of all, our programme's made up of students and the majority of students haven't been on campus. And even if they have been on campus, they can't meet. So in terms of our teams kind of forming, developing, that's been a, a challenge. We Our students work with beneficiaries, which we've not been able to get as much access to as as we usually have so we've had to really think about how do we do that how do we keep creating impact because we can't say to beneficiaries sorry we can't do anything at the moment like it doesn't work like that unfortunately so it's impacted that and obviously in terms of ultimately we're a charity so we rely on the funding of our of our partners and our sponsors and with everybody kind of having to pull like tighten the purse strings as such internally in their own organizations sometimes an actus can be seen as a nice to have versus a need to have and, and that's really impacted us as well but I think although it has been an absolute challenge and I don't think the challenge is over for us by any means there have definitely been some like fantastic results and again like I can't praise our students enough like they're honestly like amazing they as Lindsay said before about how 
and sometimes it's almost like a reverse mentoring it is still for me like with the students and they've pivoted they've they've changed how they do things the great thing about Enactus is it's not like a rugby society or a football society like we can go online so we have so all of our meetings are kind of online with our students any training recruitment is online and in many ways it's made us more accessible like I joked the other day that I was in a meeting from Scotland to Essex to um, Birmingham to Nottingham within two hours. And that would never have happened before. So we're getting to see our students a lot more. We're still getting fantastic results. They're thinking about their beneficiaries differently. So thinking about, we've got a fantastic cow project, for example, because we can see cows and it's totally fine because we don't need to worry about social distancing. So we're working on seaweed supplements to reduce methane emissions. So they're really trying to pivot that way as well. So there have been some like really kind of great things that have come out of it and some things that we wouldn't necessarily change as Lindsay and Kim and Nick have all said. But at the same time, I think for us, we cannot wait to get back on campus and we can't wait to, to go and see our teams and to go and see the beneficiaries that we work with because I think right now we miss the sparkle, like we miss that, the heart almost of an actor's because we can't physically touch it and see it but it's I think it's just it's going to come like we've just got to be patient and and wait well let's hoping that uh that we're going to get some kind of normality next year very soon so um I want to bring this to a close I've got one final question for each of you to comment on so I'm going to go around my little virtual screen that I've got here on zoom but obviously with you know technology is evolving at a ridiculous pace are we going to be having this same discussion about a digital skills gap in say 12 months or five years or, or, or 10 years time so Steve let's let's uh, let's come to you first on this I think yes but not in a negative sense because I think the pace of change that is now in the world of work is so rapid that is going to continue and I don't think um, we can predict what those gaps will be with any certainty in five to ten years time so I don't necessarily see that as a negative um, what I do think it related to um, a few people have said this already which is this is a long a, a long game and actually if we talk about the apprentice levy I think if we are sat on a on a call in five or ten years time um, actually we'll have seen apprentices become much more well known in the markets will um, parents will become more aware of them so I think it's going to take quite a long time to change change those attitudes but they certainly will change so yes i think there'll still be a conversation around this but it'll be a different type of conversation in five to ten years time sure amy yeah i agree and i think that with anything with technology like technology develops as technology develops the different skills needed will develop alongside it as well and i think that's kind of a key note to to think about as well because we probably 10 years ago we probably didn't think we would need all the skills when it came to coding or whatever it was which are now kind of emerging as we're we're thinking about the future I think another key thing to maybe add in as well just to kind of build on still Steve's point is something that our partners are talking to us a little bit more about at the moment is rather than it being just STEM moving it back to STEAM so adding the arts and the creativity back into that digital divide and have that innovation as well so that's a big thing where we're seeing a a bit of a shift in that conversation around what skills are really needed but in line still with that technology digital um space more than anything else so yeah I think we will but I think it will add in the steam element and I think it will always be changing Nick so I think the the pace of change of technology is amazingly quick so you know, Boyle's Law says it, it doubles every year. And someone explained this to me, um, and, and it blew my mind. So if you started with a g- one grain of rice on a chessboard and you doubled it every square, 
by the time you got to the 64th square, you've got enough grains of rice to stretch to the moon and back. You know, that's 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 the pace of change of of technology because the computer power is doubling just about, I think it's every five years. It's probably quicker now. So I think so I think the need for skill to um harness the value of of technology is therefore needs to keep up to that change. So I think um what it means for us is actually there's no longer we've touched upon there's no longer the world of education and then the world of work actually learning is is lifelong and actually you might be working you might have to retrain in your career five or six different times um and actually that's that's uncomfortable to say now no no one wants to not you know feel insecure and think i have to retrain but actually that's the type of conversation which needs to become a bit more normal in the workplace uh Kim, your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's similar to what everybody said, really. I think it's, until we know what technology is going to be relevant for the workforce in the future, the skills gaps are going to remain. So I think because of this, we need to focus on the learning and the training across the business, um, keeping in mind it's not a fixed point, it's an ongoing commitment. And I think the, the technology skills gaps, you know, they've been articulated to highlight dramatic changes in fast-paced environments. And we can't know for sure which skills are going to be required in the future. So I think we do need to invest in the learning so that people can be adaptive and maintain that mental flexibility. I think as line managers, we can support the development of a flexible mindset um, and the adaptive approach with agile and lean learning. And I know at AstraZeneca, we've invested in a tool called Degreed, which is basically a learning system. And what they do is it's got lots of different contents. And no matter which part of the business you're in, there's lots of things that you can take time out and learn. And I think the, the critical role in, in any business, I think, is to understand how the new technologies can benefit the company and staff and tailor learning experiences to that. Lindsay, you get the final word. Yeah, so um, I love the rice thing. Honestly, Nick, that is the one thing. So if anyone's listening to this, go and Google it, go and figure it out. My dad tells me about it all the time. So I really love that story. I think to Amy's point about that, adding the A into STEM, we see that loads. You know, we, we're hiring a lot for creatives, you know, because technology is all about the, you know, the user interfaces, how it all works and having that completely creative mindset. So again, back to the points we made around tech. But to answer your question, you know, will we still be having these conversations? I think we will, but I think we are, we're in danger that by five, 10 years time, are we going to be having conversations around social skills and mental health challenges and those sorts of things? So I think as we go through this, we need to make sure that, you know, I know Steve, resilience is one of those big ones that comes up all of the time, but are we making sure that's all in, in our development plans as well? Because, you know, it's it's getting scary, right? You know, you can touch this, you can do that, you can connect in any way, you can technically do everything without ever connecting with anyone, but you still need that. We need that social interaction and that real feeling of meeting people and those sorts of things. So I certainly think we'll always be having the conversations, but I do think there's a risk of us, then the conversations will be about that. So if we can almost nail both at the same time would be ideal um but we'll certainly if it's 10 years time we'll all be feeling super old <laughs> i really won't be part of the generation then lindsay <laughs> I really won't be. 
Good stuff. Um, we've done well. I'm just looking at my uh, at the clock here. We, we've we've been talking for a rather long time, but um, we've covered so much information. I just want to thank you all again for um, for for joining me online. So Steve Isherwood, Amy Brereton, and Nick White, Kim Hardman, and of course Lindsay Rowe from our episode partners at SAP, who I have to thank for for bringing such a great panel together. So thank you all. Don't forget, you can hear more interesting stories from the world of IT and business by subscribing to SAP UK's own Innovation X podcast series uh, that's available on SAP UK and Ireland channels. Plus, you can follow them on Twitter for their latest news and updates, which is at SAP UK Ireland. Uh, in the meantime, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode. We'd love to hear any comments uh, you may have on how we address the digital skills gap. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed, or LinkedIn and Instagram pages. They are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and support show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app and if you've enjoyed the podcast please do give us a positive rating and review Uh, finally if you'd like to get in touch with the show you can do that via the contact form on the website as well or you can connect with me on twitter using at russ goldsmith or you can find me on linkedin but for now thanks for listening and goodbye (music) 